Hey, Magnum subs. Welcome to another installment of Sex and Politics, a special bonus podcast exclusively for you Magnum Savage Lovecast subscribers out there. To say I'm a fan of today's guest would be an understatement. I am a fan and a stan of Mike Pesca. He's a journalist, a longtime radio guy, and one of the OG podcasters. He was the first person to host a podcast on NPR. And from NPR, he went to Slate, where in 2014, he created The Gist, a daily news podcast about, well, the daily news, but also about everything. News, books, film, history, sports. This isn't Mike's first appearance on the Lovecast or a Lovecast-adjacent podcast. Longtime listeners of the Savage Lovecast may recall that it was Mike who broke into an episode of the Savage Lovecast probably a decade ago to deliver some bad news. For years, people, myself included, believed that urine was sterile. Turns out it isn't, never was. So the advice I'd been giving people about piss play, not entirely accurate. After a pitcher of beer or two, it's still just hot water, but it was not sterile hot water. Beer, also not sterile, and people drink that shit. Anyway, I listen to Mike's show every day, even when the gist is about sports, which it sometimes is. I listen with me on S&P. Mike talks Trump. We talk Army Hammer. We talk Anton Twiggs and the lobster of the Anton Twig and why I do not have one yet. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Joining me now, Mike Pesca, host of the Daily News and Politics podcast and occasional sports podcast, The Gist. Hey, Mike, thank you so much for coming on my, demeaning yourself by coming on my dumb <laughs> No, it's what gives me meaning. That is demeaning that's involved. So I learned something about you getting ready for our conversation today, something that really upset me. You're younger than me, and that fucking pisses me off. Uh-huh. That's how, you know, that's how I feel about Shaquille O'Neal. I think I got a few months on him, and I'm, just give me some time, and I'll grow. But yeah, there <laughs> are the people who are a little younger than you, and you think that's great, and then there are the people who are a couple years younger than you, and it pisses you off, and I wonder, is it that we're in direct, yes, we're in direct competition <laughs> for the ears of America. <laughs> well, well, no, no, it's not that. It's that you're so smart. And such a, on almost every subject, I've been listening to the gist forever. I, I'm a huge fan of yours uh, and was before we first ever interacted on the internet, which is on Twitter, how we got to know each other a little bit. Um, and I always thought, oh yeah, maybe one day I'll be as smart as Mike Pesca. Maybe I'll catch up. But now I know I never will. Well, don't you, don't you revel in the blind spots then? Like if I didn't understand, what is something that is maybe three years older than me that I wouldn't understand? You know, I really missed the Walter Cronkite era of hosting the news. To me, it was just a historical figure and historical figure. So maybe for you, you remember that and you'll always have that on me. I also remember the first election of Ronald Reagan. Do you remember that? My or earliest my earliest memory, and uh, my friend Emily Bazelon has said she has this memory too, and so I'm wondering maybe it's like a Mandela effect, is Nixon leaving the White House, waving goodbye to the staff, and me saying to my parents, why is that man leaving? And the answer is he did a bad thing, which is all you need to get into with the kids. <laughs> and that used to get you kicked out of the White House, and now... <laughs> <laughs> well, the two, the bad thing, and then actually acknowledging that you did a bad thing. And of course, the people in your party saying, well, of course, it was a bad thing. A totally unknown world that we both come from. Well, the, the, what, all roads lead to Trump. All lines of questioning lead to Trump. Let's just start with Trump, and then maybe we can go someplace else. The, what Trump figured out that nobody quite knew was do all the bad things all at once, and it'll create such chaos 
that you can't be held accountable for any of the bad things. Right. You've probably seen the meme of Monty Burns from The Simpsons. It's all his ailments. He's, you know, a, his, a hundred something year old character and all his ailments fight each other, thus allowing him to win. It's the, it's the, <laughs> it's the multiple pathology uh, theory. And sometimes every once in a while during the Trump presidency, I would say, do you remember, wait a minute, wait a minute. Remember when what counted as a gaffe or a scandal was Mitt Romney saying binders full of women? And I try to explain it to my kids why that would possibly and if the uh, seem at all something that anyone would remark on. And that Halloween people went as binders full of women and they were engaged in witty political repartee and literally the idea that you can say something that was weird and you would have some blowback and have to answer for it during the Trump era was entirely off the table. And he did that. That's what he did. He gave himself a space to say anything idiotic and we couldn't even dwell on it for a second and a half. He has, it's such a chaotic evil genius. In the run up to 2016, your podcast then in its first season kind of helped to keep me sane because you were doing this regular segment, kind of an advice segment where you attempted to allay people's fears that Trump might actually win this thing. And I found those segments so soothing because I was really concerned that Trump might actually win this thing. And then he won that thing, Mike. Right. So this was called the Trump anxiety hotline. And I pretended that I was uh, taking calls, but they were all scripted. But it was responding to something in the ether, which is that people were so anxious about Trump winning. And the thing is, I never, it's interesting in retrospect, there are two interesting things about it. One is, I never said he won't win. I don't think that if you were manning even a real hotline that dealt with people with mental health, you would never say, okay, this thing you're worried about can't happen unless it's, you know, a flat earth theorist talking about falling off the world. But I would try to put it in more um, understandable context and say, Right now, he has a 20, 25% chance of winning. And they said, do you understand baseball? This is like you're up by five runs in the seventh inning. That's about the chance. But in retrospect, so many people who heard that blame me for guaranteeing them that Trump wouldn't win. And I never came close to saying that. Well, well, that's what they said at 538, too, that they said he had like a 20% chance, which is not, you know, if you're, you know, if you're throwing a, what is that, a five-sided dice, a four-sided dice. Mm-hmm. Math is not my thing. <laughs> like there's a good chance that you're going to come up with the, you know, with the win. I, I don't think you ever told me on that segment personally that he couldn't win and wouldn't win. That right. was the hope I brought to those segments. My fear was he might win. You helped put those fears into some sort of context and perspective. And then when he won, I was so mad at you. Yes. Mostly you. Yes. And people to this day said, Mike hasn't been as wrong about X, and sometimes X will be something I'm totally right about, as when he told us Trump wouldn't win. I'm like, well, if that's the comparison, since I never said it. But that's a little, okay, so maybe that's a little defensive for me and Nate Silver, and I expect it more. I, ex- I accept Nate's defensiveness more because he and his site, uh, 538 gave higher odds to Trump winning. It's just, we're very, we're very deterministic, which means it's either going to happen or it's not. Is it going to happen? Tell me, doc, is it going to happen? But the world is probabilistic. And it's very hard for us as human beings to understand these probabilities. And I'm drawn to them. I, I like sports and gambling, but also poker. And I, um, just later today, I'll be interviewing Annie Duke and just thinking about the world in bets or probabilities. One way to think about a 20% chance is if you do something a hundred times, it'll come out, you know, that way 20 times. So if you're talking about a low probability eventuality, you might want to try something 
that happens only one in 20 times. I don't know, planting seeds, for instance, right? And then we don't say, oh, only one out of five of those seeds actually became a, uh, a sweet potato. But it's just very hard in real life, in normal life, and especially with events that are rare. So it doesn't matter if one in 20 or one in five presidential elections will result in a uh, semi-autocratic wannabe toddler getting elected. When you only have one of those every four years, you have to really worry about it. Well, let's talk about the next time he might run, 2024. Yeah. I, I will confess that after 2020, I was kind of glad that Trump refused to rule out running again because I thought that Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio should not be allowed to get off their knees and take their tongues out of his ass, that they should have to live in that posture and position mm -hmm. forever. But now I'm worried. So I'm calling into the Trump anxiety hotline again. I'm worried that he's going to run in 2024 and possibly win. Well, I would say that right now, all the evidence is that every effect he's had on politics is bad for his party, which he doesn't even probably think of as his party. They're just the vehicle to his glory. Um, if you look at the Senate map right now, it's dotted with terrible candidates, some of whom might win. Herschel Walker's doing pretty well, but right now, 538, that site we're talking about, says the Democrats have a 70% chance of winning the Senate, at least, holding the Senate, and that shouldn't be. It, and the only reason it's true is that Trump inflected and infected candidates got the nomination. So he's pushing forward ideas and people that America hates. But what the Republican base loves, like the problem isn't like Trump has seized control of the wheel and, you know, he's driving this party and, you know, everybody in that bus is terrified and appalled. The base wants Trump. Like these Trump inflected, infected candidates you talk about, like Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, the base loves these people in part because the Republican establishment, everyone else is, thinks they're insane and terrifying. And I don't even know where I'm going with this question yet. Right. But like, it's not like we talk about Trump, Trump, Trump. It's the GOP in this base. It's the golem that the Republican Party created over 50 years of cranking up the rubes with, you know, the Southern strategy and uh, dog whistles that just became the racists everywhere strategy and the bullhorn. Yes. With Trump. Although I'd have to say that there are elements in conservatism which are troubling that Trump is 180 degrees in opposition to. Like you always thought the, tr the Republicans would be the most anti-Russian and just because it's a cult of personality, a bunch of them became pro-Russian. And Trump understands populism, whatever that means, to the point that he's actually – you know, vowing not to cut Social Security. He lies about it, but he actually knows what to say. See, the thing about the base is it becomes a tautology. Sometimes on my show, I sing that word, tautology. The base, <laughs> the ba saying that the Republican base believes in something is just saying the people who believe in something believe in something. And if the base didn't believe in something, we wouldn't even be talking about the problem of Trump. We'd probably be talking about the problem of Cruz and DeSantis. I think that to, I don't know if this is an anxiety hotline or just looking at history, you originally said, you know, uh, if Trump were off the stage, if because Trump's not off the stage, at least we have Marco and Ted with his tongue still up his ass. And that's humiliating for them. But here's something that Trump and his terrible political instincts gave us. After the last election, it should have been the case that the Republicans controlled the Senate, right? The two houses in Georgia 
should have, by all political science, have been Republicans. And by the way, the, the next big election where Stacey Abrams, who's a really good candidate, she might lose. And I can't believe these polls are showing Herschel Walker's winning. But that just tells you Georgia's really not a Democratic state. And what Trump did, remember, we should all remember, he went in and he sold this theory to Georgia that your vote doesn't matter. And he did this at a time of a special election. So there were two seats up for election. And they should have gone to Republicans. But because Trump and his big lie apparatus and his cracking, uh, his, his cracking theories, crackpot cracking theories took hold, he really convinced enough Georgians that they canceled your votes. They disenfranchised so you. Why bother? The, Republican, the Republicans lost. And the only reason we have the climate bill, which Joe Manchin insisted on calling the Inflation Reduction Act, but it really is the best climate bill we've ever had is because Trump fucked up Georgia. So thank you. Maybe those political instincts are the one that are going to obtain for the next few years. You know, a lot of people are saying now, oh, it's such a mystery. The the Republican Party was so anti-communist, so anti-Russia, and they conflated, you know, Russian communism, hating the system, hating the Russians, the Ruskies. And people keep looking at this like it's some sort of mystery, and it's not. The Republican Party is always dominated by, I think, Christian fascists. I've been on the receiving end as a gay man my entire adult, consciously political life of kind of right-wing Christian fascist abuse. Uh, not me personally, like all of us. And with when Putin came in, he's a Christo-fascist. He revived the hyper-conservative Russian Orthodox Church. Of course, Republicans and Fox News 15 years ago, 20 years ago, began warming up to Putin, not a communist anymore, an oligarch, a crony capitalist, and a right-wing Christian who immediately started beating up queers, which is, of course, that had appeal. Right. To, to the Republican Party, to the pre-Trump Republican Party. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. If you made a list of world leaders and world policy and just rank them by how anti-gay they were, there would be a huge correlation to what a large element of the American right liked and cottoned to. That is that is a good and interesting point. We were the very sparkly canaries in that coal mine. <laughs> what some call uh, the coal mine, others call the hottest the... club of the season. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> or we're or we're the canaries in the colon. <laughs> if you've ever that, been to see, Berlin, I'm that, sure you could catch that at a show. That wasn't the shaft I was thinking of, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can we talk quickly about fucking your cousin? Uh huh. That's what I wanted you... to ask you about. You recently dedicated an entire segment to fucking your cousin, Dr. Oz, running for an open Senate seat in Pennsylvania uh, against John Fetterman. And that opening of the gist that you just did is an example of why I really admire you. You're clearly, you know, in the Fetterman camp, but you knocked down a Fetterman talking point or a Fetterman social media team dunk on Dr. Oz, where he did an interview who said, you know, they dug something up where he's on somebody else's show saying that if you're fucking your cousin, it's not a big deal as long as you're not fucking your first cousin, and you came to Dr. Oz's defense. That's right. I rode in over the horizon with my OZ flag, which turned to 90 degrees, says no. But yeah, he was on The Breakfast Club, and he gets asked a saucy question in 2014. Hey, I'm uh, having relations with my cousin. Is that okay? They turn to him because he's a quote-unquote medical expert. He's got this weird category of really being this brilliant surgeon, but also a crackpot. I guess the crackpot is what made him the most money, the surgeon. The <laughs> snake oil salesman yeah, aspect yeah. of his career, that pivot. But he 
correctly said the science, which we want to defer to, the science says that if it's not your first cousin, there are no genetic implications. I did the research. I thought he was right. He turns, it turns out he's right. And then I further said on the show, well, he also then said something about pheromones, which I initially didn't believe because I'm kind of suspicious of the whole idea of pheromones. They say, it seems like a multisyllabic word that people use to kind of mean magic, but there is actually some science saying that in a family, those with a family relation will have a smell that others in their family don't like. They've done studies of cousins who are brought up together and cousins not, and they figure out that if you know someone familiarly, you will not like their smell. And I was actually skeptical on the uh, pheromones make you not want to sleep with relatives, but he actually has some scientific basis on that. I'd like to, by the way, I want to get back to the implications of the incest thing, but have you talked about pheromones? Do you believe in pheromones? I believe in pheromones when I have my face buried in my boyfriend's armpits. Like at those <laughs> yeah. moments, I believe. It's like a little bit like Tinkerbell. I can see it. Have you done any reading about genetic sexual attraction, which would seem to balance out? Like sometimes it's a concern when people go looking for their biological family members, you know, after they were adopted. It has happened enough that it is research has been done that people have met up with their biological mom or siblings and then slept with them and felt like like they'd done something insanely transgressive and that they were terrible, terrible people. But there does seem to be something to this theory of genetic sexual attraction. And there's it's being raised together in close proximity and living together that creates kind of the incest effect, taboo, uh, which can be a problem if you're in you know a very long-term relationship Sometimes I think we don't talk about enough the siblingification of romantic relationships after a while, after you've lived together for 25 years, and we should. But that pheromone thing would seem to me that, you know, pheromones repel, like, how do you square that with the theory of genetic sexual attraction pulling people who are related together? Yeah. Uh, and I remember one of the first gigs I had in radio was a producer on a show and a woman named Katherine Harrison came in. Do you remember her? She wrote a memoir called The Kiss, which is just that. She mm -hmm. became acquainted with her father and began to have an affair. And it was, it was a fraught interview. In between every break of the show, she'd come in and hug her, I guess, husband or partner at the time. It was it was something to witness, but that got that first alerted me to the phenomenon. And since then there has been a lot of science backing it up. The thing that I said about Oz was not just that, oh, he happened to get it right. It's really unfair to dig up a 2014 interview where a man gets the science right. And it's not like he was campaigning on this. He was asked about this by a morning zoo crew whose, you know, main celebrity's middle name is the Charlemagne the God. Um, but <laughs> if we are dunking on him, and that is not just the, the mode of operation of America today, but that's literally how the Fetterman campaign is running its show because he had a stroke and can't get out there and do a lot of campaigning. So there's a lot of dunks going on and, and, and uh, Oz is giving them material. But at base, the whole idea of mocking Oz for this essentially comes down to, isn't that a sexual practice? that we haven't really thought of, that we think is icky, and let's mock icky sexual practices. And think about that in principle. Let's apply that to other aspects of the world. And the, some of the very same people who are getting a semi-dopamine hit for doing that to Oz would be appalled if that set of circumstances were applied in any other walk of life. So that's what yeah. I wanted to challenge my audience to think about. 
And I think another aspect of the busting of this cousin thing, I've written a lot about this and not because I have a stake in it. I've never met a cousin of mine that I wanted to fuck. (laughs) And as a gay man, you know, the standard objections don't apply. Anything is possible for God. Miracles happen, but inbreeding, not a concern for us. People freak out about this when I pointed out in my column over and over and over again for 30 years. First cousin marriage is legal in 26 states, legally recognized in all 50, legal in Canada, legal in the UK, legal in the European Union. Like, the you Europeans, your they're, first more, they're more advanced than us. They beat us on the death penalty. Maybe they know where we're going. They regulate Google better. I defer. So, so I don't, you know, Charles Darwin married a first cousin, uh, Charles Dickens, all the Chucks in history, uh-huh. all the best Chucks married first cousins. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt was a first cousin. Like, it, it, the, the no, reaction, they weren't first cousins. Weren't they first cousins? No, I think that they were further than first. Oh my God, I got to look this up. <laughs> <laughs> but the reaction people have when you talk about first, you know, the gut sort of like recoil because incest, we should all recoil. Um, I'm very pro the incest taboo, and I'm concerned constantly by the amount of incest porn that is consumed. I don't get it. Um, but the, the the reaction people have to cousins, when cousins can legally marry and there's never been a controversy about it or a debate about it, seems a bit crazy to me. Like, I don't understand the disconnect there, you know? We're dunking on Oz because... You know, the framing is sort of he's campaigning in favor of cousins marrying or yeah, that's to make it compulsory in that's Pennsylvania. Right. That's right. Under his name, you know, not like Oz for Pennsylvania. Just like get it on with your cousin. <laughs> yeah, you can't smoke a cigarette, but you can smoke your cousin's poll. Vote <laughs> Dr. Oz 2024. So uh, Franklin and Eleanor were fifth cousins once removed. Oh, well, boy, I got that really, Ooh, really God. wrong. <laughs> I'd hate to think about Kermit's genetics. You know what show I wanted to ask you about? Do you mind if I turn What's the that? tables? Have you seen? Oh, no, not at all. Have you seen the uh, three-part Armand Hammer documentary? I have not. So as a, uh, as a piece of filmmaking, it got great reviews. I thought that it relied too much on the trope of literally showing a Wikipedia screen to give us, a- to give us information. That is cheating if you're a documentarian. And a large portion of the interview is connecting Army Hammer with uh, his great-grandfather, Armin Hammer, who died when Army was four. So much is made of this. Well, they were both men attracted to power in different ways. But I'm sure you know about the broad uh, critique. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes, yes. So it's absolutely, you know, allegations of rape and lack of consent. But they get into and they quote, I guess, someone who is an expert on how a I guess BDSM or a subdom relationship would go and what's the right way of giving consent. And this person kind of lays out the correct way to do it. And Army Hammer didn't. Do we really? Yes, of course he didn't do it right because we have these allegations that all, that's all you need to know. But here is my question. In the normal course of things, a couple might try different sexual practices. And one member of the couple might and probably often is initially initially more into it than the other one, right? Or yeah, might absolutely. try to convince the other one. And there are ethical ways to go about convincing the other one. Army Hammer is in a position where, especially because a lot of these uh, women, young women, he's uh, starting relationships with are younger than him. He's in a position to almost always be able to convince someone to go along with what he wants. And doesn't this, I mean, to me, this brings up, it's very dangerous. 
And I would think that unlike 99% of the normal people who wanted to pursue this sort of relationship, you have to say to someone who is so good looking and so famous and so wealthy that the- And so married to somebody else. That is true. A father of a small child. Yeah, which is is an extra layer of uh, ethical incorrectness. I've read a little bit about the Armie documentary. What I'm concerned about, you know, talking about science, there's a growing body of research that a lot of what we think of as personality shaped by environment is actually heritable, that there's a genetic component to personality. But this suggestion, and I watched the trailer, so I wasn't going to talk about it until I got to actually watch the whole thing. There's a suggestion that, you know, having power mad, you know, family members who are abusive uh, or monstrous is going to make you kinky, you know, two, three generations later. And that's not how kink works. Right. right. And a lot of people into uh, BDSM and DS are people who are scrupulously ethical and want to contain power play in a relationship in a safe way. They really want to wall it off from other emotional dynamics. So it's not abusive or coercive. doesn't mean there aren't some shitty people out there doing it wrong. There are also lots of shitty people out there doing vanilla sex, missionary, heterosexual wrong too. Uh, and it gets coercive. But yeah, I'm concerned about the Army Hammy documentary. And, you know, like people are into all sorts of, people are into vor. People are into all sorts of fucked up shit. And nobody chooses their kinks. Right. They choose us in this weird way. We're exposed to external stimuli, really pre-puberty, and some of our erotic imaginations just sees, some of us, randomly our erotic imagination sees on X, whatever X might be, and a lifelong sexual obsession grows out of that, and there's no control for it, and there's no moral failure in it. It's only how you choose to express it as an adult, and I think... I said this in an intro to the podcast, Army Hammer was in a position where he had to overcorrect to get consent. Whereas if he was just an insurance adjuster in Cleveland, he wouldn't have had to, he, he could have probably gotten a straighter answer out of the women that he was interested in doing these crazy kinky things with than Army Hammer movie star could get. Right. So Army Hammer movie star had to go to greater lengths to get consent than he actually did, which is that's, why he doesn't get to And really that's start. what I would say. If I was advising Army Hammer and also wanted to, you know, if you're his uh, financial advisor, you'd say, just don't do it. But what do you care about the guy's actual uh, sexual tastes or proclivities? If you were to take that into account, I would, I think, go as far as to say you should not try to get anyone into this sort of relationship unless they have experience with it. Because there is just too much of a chance and too much of legal exposure, right? This isn't just a kink that's embarrassing. You're literally harming another person's body and maybe uh, breaking the law if even retroactively they say, I didn't realize what I was consenting to. I would say, Mm -hmm. just don't do it. Sorry. I mean, it's not, I guess, fair, but don't do it with anyone who doesn't have experience in this community already. Yeah, and there were probably lots of professional dominatrixes he could have employed. There were ways for him to get there. There was some part of him when you read about these relationships where he was getting off, not just on the discreet, you know, BDSM power play sex acts, that power exchange, but also the power he had as a rich and famous movie star in those contexts and those relationships. Uh, uh, there's a couple of, like, do we, how do we transition smoothly from BDSM cannibalism and army hammer to the queen of England, the late <laughs> queen of England, BDSM to 
HRH, Her Royal Highness. Uh, Her late Royal Highness. Her former Royal Highness. HFRH. I've always been a bit of a monarchist, which, you know, in reality is just a harmless bit of contrarianism. Like we're not going to have a monarchy, but I, I sometimes look at these systems where the head of state is not whoever won an election. Right. And it walls off the trappings and responsibilities and ceremonial duties of the head of state from, you know, grubby political politics. It also makes it impossible or less likely for political parties to leverage those things like the White House, our palace, like Air Force One. And I can see the upside in that. And, you know, the trappings of our, I sometimes think I'd rather have a glittery coronation once every few decades or seven decades in this case than an inauguration, a self aggrandizing bullshit pomp and circumstance inauguration every four fucking years. It gets a little exhausting. Yeah. But that actually, this is just me making my case for monarchy. What I wanted to confront you about was your disrespect for the queen. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I think you're thinking about the best case scenario with monarchy, which is the most prominent example and someone who inhabited that role for 70 years. I mean, the king of Thailand, if you come close to insulting him, you go to jail. The king of Eswatini, which is Lesotho, uh, is going through a power struggle that is not good for the people there. Saudi Arabia. But, but you know, yeah. you, can have a, you can have authoritarianism and a totalitarianism without hereditary monarchs. And a lot of the countries lefties point to as examples, models that we should emulate, Denmark, Holland, Sweden, Norway, are constitutional monarchies. Yeah. And all the countries of the Commonwealth, which is like a third of the world. I mean, there are also European nations that had a head start on democracy and were in good position to uh, colonize others, therefore enriching themselves. So that correlates. I do think a co- I do think a monarchy works well for England and the UK. They seem to have loved this particular queen. Uh, the other day, I did the cost benefit analysis. It costs one pound forty nine pence for every UK citizen to fund the sovereign fund, which is totally worth it. That's three days of Netflix at ten ninety nine. <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't trade three days of Netflix? You might watch the Queen for five days. The actual Queen only cost three days. But, of but you know, the, the, the comparison that nobody ever makes and you didn't make in your, I'm sorry, butt covering intro where you were like, you, you were, you weren't reverential enough. And I don't think people have to be reverential. I, I'm at once a monarchist, but also eating up the, you know, Irish Twitter and black Twitter and Caribbean <laughs> Twitter, dancing insults, South street celebrations about the queen's death. I can make that straddle. The comparison is, well, how much does the presidency cost us? Everything in the case of the last one, potentially. <laughs> yeah, what does the average American pay to like upkeep for the White House, Air Force One, all these, all the Secret Service security details, not just for the current president, but all past presidents and their bratty fucking kids? Right. Like, I, I, I would imagine we're paying more than one pound 49 pence, you know, translated into dollars per American to support the president of the United States. Hmm. I don't know. That's a good question because that would be about five. That would be about half a billion dollars, and that seems like if you just go for the actual security. Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe you're right. Maybe how they define security. The first lady has her own fucking plane too. The she does. 
Yeah. <laughs> she or no, the 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 vice president. Yes, the vice president does. I think no, the first lady did. But you know, if the first lady is also the president's cousin, they get two planes. <laughs> <laughs> One for each. There uh, are certain perks. Um quickly before we before we uh, go, you were a radio guy, you started at WNYC, you were there for years and worked on and appeared on absolutely iconic NPR shows. You also had one of the first podcasts on NPR and you've been a podcaster. Is about as long as I have. I think I have one of the early podcasts, and maybe you do too. Um, I've been doing this for 15 years. Which do you think is better as a medium, radio or podcasting? Or is it maybe there's a difference but not much of a distinction? I think that for the average consumer, if you had to just pick only one, which is weird. I mean, podcasts didn't just happen after radio, right? That's not just a time sequence. They sprang from radio, so it's like saying, "What's better, uh, the stage or or dramas on television?" I think that it was it was a natural evolution. Um, it had to have uh, flowed that way. What podcasts do is it satisfies the niche audience and it throws away the confines of broadcasting. And when we first got into it, broadcasting seemed like uh, a yoke. Uh, okay, by broadcasting, you have to appeal to all people at all the time and never offend. But now that we're living in such a fractured society without anything approaching a monoculture, I think that broadcasting has great appeal when there are just a few networks. I don't like the narrowness of choice. And of course, with broadcasting, you also get the fact that lots of voices are shut out. But at least it had, there was a shared reality to broadcasting. And you were always, you know, your opinions or inclinations were tempered by the fact that, oh my God, I can't say this if 48% of the audience isn't going to like it. So for all the glories of that niche podcast about the subject, uh, you know, that TV, that TV show that only lasted two seasons and yet there's a podcast about every episode, and that's great. And for all the people who love Savage Lovecast or The Gist because we love the voices of those people who probably in 1978 wouldn't be welcome to participate in the conversation – all the extremism uh, that we're seeing in the world and in media comes from the same common source, which is that fact that we have no broadcasting and gatekeepers became a dirty word. So I'm, I'm in favor of a little bit of broadcasting. I'm in favor of a little bit of gatekeepers. I think that podcasting is of a piece with a society with a lot of dynamism and a society that's shaken up a lot. And there are a lot of extremes. Do you like that society? I mean, you could go to Great Heights. People can make a lot of money. We'll have amazing technology. But also, you can't believe that you're living in the same society as people who are flatter theorists and worse. That is all because we don't have a monoculture and broadcasting and gatekeepers. What's a guy got to do to get to be the love star of the Anton Twig? <laughs> you just have to interact with the gist in a very productive way that makes the world or the gist a little better or just tickle me. And I mean that only figuratively. Okay. So the, the Anton Twig is every three weeks you do a, a, a spiel on the gist where you go through like- You're just using code. Made. The listeners do not understand those last eight words you said. Yeah. A fortnight <laughs> is two weeks and Antoine- an Antwentig from the old English for 21 is three weeks. Exactly. And so you do kind of like, it's like a mailbag and you respond to people who like caught you out if you got something wrong. I've been trying to become the lobster of the Anton Twig for a decade, maybe. <laughs> um, I recently caught you saying that Star Wars was, you liked Star Wars because it's about the future and uh, 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 a long time ago in a galaxy far, far, far away. away. And I thought, oh my God, I finally like sent Mike a note, caught him in a mistake that is going to get me 
at least a mention on an Anton Twig, if not Lobstar, but no. Am I just disqualified? Should I stop trying? Well, Dan, as astrophysicists will tell you, as you say, approach a black hole, time begins to bend. So it could both be uh, a long time ago and in the future, Star Wars can. So I'm going to, that keeps the Lobstar, that keeps that <laughs> Lobstar from your clutches. And here is the actual Lobstar that we send. Lobstars oh my god! Twig. I, I have an Emmy now. I want uh, I want a lobster. That's all I want. <laughs> you um, could be a legot. <laughs> the lobster. Uh, so let, uh, we're going to take a question together. We're going to end by taking a listener question um, because we uh, like to give everybody who comes on this show an opportunity to give a little sex advice. Try your hand at it. Sure. Hi Dan. I decided to cheat to keep my marriage of twenty years intact. And I'm a month in. I've fallen for this guy fucking head over heels. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to separate the emotions. I mean, I guess this is just new relationship energy. Maybe a couple months down the road, things will be better, but I don't know. So maybe I should recuse myself because this is clearly a listener who took some advice I gave, which is sometimes you got to do what you got to do to stay married and stay sane. Mm -hmm. But... And that might mean an affair. If you're in a sexless marriage, you know, you have kids, you still love your spouse, you don't want to leave, but you got to get some sex or you're going to, you're going to leave. So you go find some sex, but you know, she found some sex and then fell for the guy. So she took my advice already. It didn't work out so well. So I'm going to kick this to you. What should she do now? Okay. So I was over, I was over indexing that first phrase, that tossed off phrase, which was in order to save my marriage, I had an affair. And I said to myself, is that a thing? Is that an oxymoron? So I understand when you lay it out in longer form, uh, the logic of it, the argument that's being made, and maybe she was speaking to you in your shorthand, and so I shouldn't judge her as much. But from that short phrase, I said to myself, that's not really a thing. That's characteristic of self-delusion. You might mean something explicable, but by not even engaging in it, what she's basically telling me is I'm in a marriage that is not working for me. I had an affair and I like the guy I'm having an affair with. This has all the characteristics of a marriage that's not working. The old saw is when you hear hooves, think horses, not zebras. Everything about what she's saying is that she's in an old nagging mare of a marriage and it's about to trample her bad marriage. And I'm also going to say, I have no faith that this current affair is going to last. It might be that new relationship energy also. Don't think that it will. Crazy, you know NRE, you know new relationship (laughs) energy, but you don't know another kind of savage love. Well, I didn't invent NRE as a concept uh, or the term, Um, but it is just true of a lot of long ass term relationships that sometimes people cheat and stay and the cheating makes the staying possible. And it's easy to black hat, white hat cheating that the cheater is always a terrible person and you should do the right thing and leave if you want to have sex with somebody else. But I think you can show loyalty with something other than your genitals every once in a while. And I've gotten letters from people who are in marriages that are sexless for 20 years and they have, or have been 20 years sexless for a decade and they have two special needs kids and the person who wants, you know, who wants to have sex with somebody else is dependent on financially on the, their spouse or vi- or flip side, you know, the person who the, the other person is financially dependent. And like, 
I look at those situations, it's easy to look at them and say, okay, well, do the right thing and get a divorce. Do a right thing and blow up your kids' lives. Sometimes I think the right thing or the least worst choice is to cheat and stay rather than do it right and leave. It's just we're so obsessed with monogamy successfully executed over 50 years that nobody can wrap their heads around the contingencies that might have to be made for the larger good of preserving a relationship that maybe should survive. But in this case, you know, I'm saying all this rather defensively because this reader took my advice and it's not working out for her. Well, I also think that's the most sympathetic reading or presentation of circumstances. There's probably the least sympathetic version of that where you tell yourself, I did it to save my marriage, but it kind of doesn't matter. I mean, there are, there's some set of circumstance that leads you to cheat and you like the person you're cheating with quite a lot. Um, in general, what does that mean? I guess we don't, we can't definitively say, but I would say Occam's razor is it's probably not a great relationship. And did you cheat to stay? I don't know. The one other data point we have is that now you're falling for the guy, which probably correlates to the, the, uh, an idea that you didn't think your marriage was so entirely worth saving as it is. I also, and maybe I overread this, the fact that it was so short and there was such a paucity of information, maybe I read a little bit into too much. And I'm sure you're bedeviled by the calls that go way overboard and tell you all the yeah, stuff yeah. you don't need to know. But the fact that she no, just- but I, yeah. I, I want to concede that like, yes, people can use some of my advice to rationalize affairs. Uh, you know, it's better to go and get permission, you know, a DADT agreement, don't ask, don't tell. Like, obviously our marriage isn't about sex whatever you need to do, whatever I need to do, let's just give each other some license. So long as we're discreet and considerate and we don't, I don't fuck your sister. You don't fuck my brother. And we like, <laughs> neither one of us prioritize each right. other's. <laughs> yeah. You know, I start fucking all your cousins or my cousins, but yeah, people will rationalize, which is why we also have the label CPOS at Savage Lovecast, which is cheating piece of shit. That sometimes you go through all the circumstances and you're like, okay, you get a permission slip to do what you need to do. And sometimes you go through it and you're like, you're just a monster. You're a serial adulterer and you're rationalizing bad behavior because you want to sidestep a perhaps difficult conversation and that's just cowardice. Yeah. Or let's take the morality out of it. The marriage isn't working. And whether you thought you did it to save the, the se- marriage. No, no, no. The sex isn't working. The sex that's the only the data marriage. point we have. Right. Sometimes the marriage is working and the sex isn't. And what do you do then? Right. But the person who says, I cheated to save my marriage, that could be a rationalization for, I mean, what she's identifying out loud is that the sex isn't working, but it could mean that the marriage itself isn't working. Mike Pesca, host of the Daily News and Politics podcast, The Gist, which is also occasionally a sports podcast. Mike, I'm such a huge fan. You are the only person on radio, on television, who has a podcast that I will sit and listen to a 20-minute conversation about pro sports that you sometimes have with your guests. You are the only – my brothers couldn't get me to listen to them talk about pro sports. My dad, only you. Uh, I thank you very much and – You make it interesting. The same – Even pro sports. The same is true back at you except water sports. Cannibalism, cousin (laughs) fucking. I can get people to listen to that. People talk, even you talk about that stuff. I think that is more mass appeal than, say, rugby, but yes. Thank you so much. Thank you all for listening to this installment of S&P, Sex and Politics, our special bonus podcast exclusively for Magnum Savage Lovecast subscribers. You can find The Gist on all podcast platforms and on Mike's website, mikepesca.com, where you can also find his other writings, his other podcasts, his other books, and find Mike on Twitter and follow Mike on Twitter at 
Pashemi, P-E-S-C-A-M-I. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for downloading. And we'll have another Sex and Politics for you very soon.